listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So Isaiah chapter 35, I really wrestled uh, as, we, as we walked through this Advent season, peace, love, joy, hope. Uh, we, we talked about love last week. Pastor Mark was in 1 John and, uh, and preached an incredible message about love. And as I was assigned the topic of joy, I really wrestled with what to preach. And it's not because I don't necessarily have joy or because I don't feel joy this morning or even uh, in this season. But really, I found it difficult to preach this message because I think it's something that many of us have heard. Like we've all heard the message or the sermon on joy, that joy is different from happiness. See, you've heard the message, right? Joy is something that is altogether from happiness. It's altogether different. Happiness is found in circumstances, and joy is something that kind of supersedes circumstances. It's something that you can have no matter what circumstance you go through. And while I do believe that's true, and I think that we're going to unpack a little bit about that this morning during our time together, I think, could be wrong, but I think that that message feels a bit trite to us, especially in this Christmas season. Yes, we intellectually agree that that's true, that joy is something that the Christian can have. Joy is something that supersedes happiness. But if we're honest with one another, most of our days are filled with immense difficulties. We're just a struggling people. And on the road to joy, whatever that elusive concept is, wouldn't we just settle for a little bit of happiness? I, I probably some days I would just say, Lord, I'll, I'll take happiness. Forget the joy, whatever that is. I'll just take a bit of happiness. Anybody else identify, resonate with that? Joy sounds nice, but happiness would be just fine too. The people of God, the Israelites, here as Isaiah chapter 35 begins, are in the one, one of the most darkest times, one of the most difficult times in all of their history Anything that they had experienced. I was sitting at lunch with a friend the other day, and he looked down at his cell phone, and he said, oh, man, good news. I just won the Powerball. All I have to do is text back with my address and Social Security number. And everybody just laughed, right? The news was too good to be true. Of course, he didn't win the Powerball. That would be nice, right, to win the Powerball? But it'd be too good to be true. That's how... These 10 verses seem against the backdrop of all of Isaiah, against the backdrop of everything that the Israelites had experienced and what they were experiencing in their present circumstances. This morning, I want us to see as the people of God together from Isaiah chapter 35 that the plan of God for the people of God is everlasting joy. The plan of God for the people of God is everlasting joy. So here are four truths for the redeemed. Four truths for the redeemed. The first is this, that joy is guaranteed 
for the redeemed. Now, Isaiah gives us this idea that joy is indeed guaranteed. This isn't a joke. It's not larger than life. In fact, Isaiah says that joy is life, that this is the thing that the people of God are to experience, and he says that it is certainly coming for the people of God. And so he begins with this metaphor, this really flowery bit of language as to what life is going to be like for the redeemed, for the ransom, and we're hit immediately with a desert that will be glad. Blossoming even, it says, like the crocus. Verse two says, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Now, if we were to step back and and look at Isaiah chapter 33, we would see that there was land that was mourning, the text says, and languishing. Lebanon was confounded and it was withering away. Sharon, a desert, Now it's the opposite here in Isaiah chapter 35. This isn't, I've never been to Phoenix, but I've heard a lot about Phoenix. People always talk, man, Phoenix is awesome. Super hot, but a really awesome place. And I imagine if you had a front yard in Phoenix, it's a desert landscape. It doesn't look like our lawns. Is that right? Anybody who knows? Okay, thank you. I get a couple of head nods right? And so it's a, it's a desert area. It's not like the text is not giving us this picture that we're going to add a few cactuses and add some new rocks and make this a new landscape. No, this is something altogether different. This is flowering in the midst of despair. This is water in the midst of a drought. It's something altogether different. We're supposed to see a picture of something that is dead, that was dead, and is now alive. We're supposed to read Isaiah chapter 35 here, and we're supposed to think, this is supernatural transformation. This is something altogether different. And most importantly, I want us to see that we need to know that God desires to do something within, transformative within his people. Verse 10 gives us a better idea. Look there with me. It says, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is more than a circumstantial change. This is greater than just a turn of events. This is God showing up to do a work of transformation inside of his people. Now, the NIV actually has a stronger translation here. They shall obtain gladness and joy. The NIV says that gladness and joy will overtake the ransom. It's a a military concept. This is what is going to overtake the people of God, that joy and gladness aren't just received. They're going to overtake God's people. And on that day, what's going to happen, what's going to be left in the dust is sorrow and sigh. In Genesis chapter three, we saw after Adam and Eve committed their first sin that the ground itself was cursed. The ground that was supposed to easily produce food and fruit and beautiful things that should be enjoyed, even tasted and eaten was now to be filled with great toil and difficulty. Now think about that for a second. Some of you who are familiar with farming, 
Brother Walton, for sure, if you've been to his garden, he is very familiar with Georgia red clay and how terrible it is in this area, right? Anna, you're shaking your head as well. You know it all too well. Can you think for a second that that Georgia red clay was supposed to be fertile, beautiful, always just blossoming the things that we could eat from so easily? Romans 8 tells us that creation itself is eagerly longing for the effects of sin's curse to be broken. And Isaiah 35 steps in here to say that the curse indeed will be reversed. Now, that's all great. That's really good. But I'm starting to sound like the guy that I didn't want to sound like at the beginning of my sermon, right? Like that just sounds too good to be true. That's a lot, Chris. Georgia red clay becoming something fertile, like that doesn't, that doesn't correspond. Dead things coming back to life, people having an everlasting joy, that doesn't make sense in the here and now. And so I don't desire to just give you religious platitudes about how joy is yours and how it's going to be better for you tomorrow. So let's find out in the text where exactly that guarantee is. Because God says that it is happening for the people of God, that joy everlasting is for you. It is for the redeemed. So where is that? Look at verse four with me. Tucked into verse four, how is this all going to happen? It says this, this small phrase, it says, your God will, your God will come. That's the guarantee. I want to unpack that in just a moment. Russell Moore has this fantastic book called Adopted for Life. If you've never read it, it is a a tremendous read. But he really opens up that book with a story about he and his wife's own adoption journey. And they find themselves, some of you are familiar with this story, they find themselves in a a Russian orphanage knowing that they were going to go and uh, adopt a child from this orphanage. And they had been told that there were tons of babies here, tons of babies that were in need of parents, babies that literally had no one to care for them. So as they walk into this orphanage expecting to hear just a ton of crying, he writes about hearing the scariest noise that he's ever heard in his life, a deafening sound. Because as you would imagine walking through the halls of an orphanage with rows of babies in cribs, you would expect to just hear a lot of crying. A lot of you moms and dads, the young children right now say amen. Can't imagine tons of them, right? He says, It was so scary because not a one child was crying. Not one baby was making a single sound. It was the scariest noise that he had ever heard. The babies were were quiet. Because you see, what had happened was that at some point, as those babies cried and cried and cried, which is a completely normal human interaction for a young child, they realized at some point that no one was coming for them. So they stopped. Isaiah chapter 35 is that moment when those silent babies begin to cry. 
When the deserts bloom and the waters spring forth in a dry land for the redeemed, for the people of God, joy is not found in a circumstance. It's not found in a different circumstance, though we often would want that to happen. It's found, hear this, in the presence of God coming to his people. That's where joy is found. This guarantee, hear this family, your God will come is the basis for joy. That's the guarantee. Are you looking for a guarantee for joy in your life? That is it. Cling to that. Hold on to that. Your God will come. That's it. As we remember the first coming of Christ in this Advent season, let us cling to that guarantee. Your God will come. The source of joy whether we realize it or not, is not in our bank account moving from negative to positive. It's not in our children moving from misbehavior to good behavior. It's not in moving from your spouse nagging you to respecting you. It's not, in fa- it's not found in D's on your report cards all of a sudden miraculously becoming A's. Joy is found in the presence of God coming to his people. Your God will come is the basis for joy in your life. It's the guarantee of it. And before we move on, let's, let's look and see just who this God is that is coming. Verse three, whose God is this? He's the God of those who have weak hands. He's the God of a people who have feeble knees. He's the God of those who have anxious hearts. And we as the people of God need to hear that message this morning because the gospel is not to be reconciled with the American idea that we are to pull ourselves up by the bootstrap theology, the kind that says, get yourself together, son, and then get yourself to church. No, this joy, this gospel joy is only for those who realize they can't help themselves. It is a message, it is a good news for a people who admit that they indeed have feeble knees, anxious hearts, weak hands. Do you realize that our Sunday gathering is an admittance of that fact? We come together week after week, and I pray that you do. I pray that you have committed with one another in the family to do that as much as you can, as often as you can, to gather with the saints on a Sunday morning. And us coming together as the people of God is an admittance that we are weak, that we are anxious, that we are feeble, that we don't come together to prove ourselves worthy of our worship to God, but that we admit that we're coming together, submitting ourselves to a God who is worthy. He's worthy of worship. Are you weak this morning? Feeble? Anxious even? Our God is coming for you. He's here. He's come to meet you. As we move on in verse four, I want us to see that not only is joy guaranteed, but also it's made simple for the redeemed. Verse four gets a little tricky. Here's what, we'll get into it. Because as we keep reading, we find out just how this God is coming. I said the guarantee of our joy is that your God will come, but 
Isaiah goes further. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And we have to stop for a second and ask, is this the same passage? After we just read about all of these flowery things, the desert coming to life, the the crocus blooming, all of these beautiful things, and now our God is coming with vengeance? After the verses we just read, I was thinking, this is Jess, but I'm thinking that God is coming with like Oreos and milk, my favorite nighttime dessert. Anybody Oreo and milk lovers? Bless you. Uh, Enough of you haven't found that joy, apparently. But I I read that and I think to myself, man, this, this, this is happening. This is good stuff coming. God is bringing the good things that we want to life. And now it says that he's coming with vengeance and recompense. He's coming with retribution. Now, on, on one hand, I don't think that we mind talks of vengeance. In fact, over the next two years, if you're mildly involved in social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever there are, the options are seemingly endless nowadays. If you're mildly on social media, you'll find out, and maybe, hopefully not, but maybe you're a part of this as well, that everyone is fine with vengeance. I hope they get what's coming to them. I hope that's what you get because you've done this. You voted for that man or woman. You did it. We're cool with vengeance, right? We're good. Even atheists may admit, I'm sorry to misrepresent you if you come this morning and you would identify as an atheist, but I think, I really am convinced that almost everyone at the end of the day would be fine with some higher power to just deal with the bad people, right? We are good with vengeance, Most are cool with those people getting what's coming to them. You name it, whatever those people are, rapists, child molesters, murderers, they should pay. We're good with vengeance. It's the other part, retribution, that we don't like so much. But here's why. I would argue because retribution is about not what they have done, but what you have done. That God is not just coming for them in vengeance, but God is coming for me in retribution. And this is the part of the Christian story, if we're honest, that is really difficult to take in at times. Because God isn't just coming, this is what the Bible says, this isn't what Chris has come up with his, come up with in my own mind. The Bible says that God is not just coming for the evil out there, but he's also coming for the evil here. And honestly, We're really good at pointing the other out. But God is coming because evil is also in here. And when God comes, he's going to expose every bit of it. Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah gets this vision of the throne room of God and he finds himself in the throne room with the, the train of God filling the room and all of a sudden, without any prompting, without anyone telling him what to do, what does he do? 
He falls down and he says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When he finds himself in the presence of almighty God, he bows in worship. He didn't have to think about it because the presence of God always reveals, it always exposes. In God's presence, we become aware of what we are. We become aware of who we are, aware that we are indeed sinners, aware that we often want to do things our own way despite God's constant invitation into fellowship and relationship with him. And when we realize our sinfulness apart from Christ, we recognize that we can't stand on our own. And in fact, we realize and recognize that we are not just in need of the judgment and retribution of God, but that we deserve it. But here's why I said that joy is made simple for the redeemed, because it seems like we have a really big problem. Joy is guaranteed for the people of God. It is guaranteed for the redeemed, but God is also coming in judgment with vengeance and retribution. And we recognize that in our sinful state, the state that we are born from our mother's womb into, we have nothing to stand on. We're sinners. We've wanted to go our own way. We are fleeing from a relationship with a holy God. So the question becomes this, How can God possibly come and deal with the evil out there and with the evil in here without obliterating me? How can he do that? How can he guarantee that joy is mine forevermore? How can we possibly stand in his presence? That's how joy is made simple for the redeemed and it's answered in the first advent, the person that is Christmas. So third, we see that joy is found in Jesus Christ for the redeemed. The Lord Jesus Christ, the way that God makes joy simple for the redeemed, knowing our desperate need for both grace and judgment is through a baby being born in Bethlehem. That's how God does it. That's how he deals with the evil out there and the evil in here without completely obliterating me. While Isaiah's original audience was looking forward to this, we really have the unique spot in redemptive history of remembering this baby's advent, this baby's coming, Jesus' coming, and also knowing that he has indeed come. So for us as believers under the new covenant, we aren't stuck looking at just a save the date card on our refrigerator. That's gone. He's come. He's here. In Matthew chapter one, the angel comes to Joseph in verse 20 and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this baby that is to be born has two names. What are those names? Jesus and 
Emmanuel. And we can't miss that because found in those two names is the key to the joy that God wants for us. It's where God makes the impossible simple. It's where God satisfies, satisfies this paradox. So what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Remember verse four, your God will come. The angel in Matthew chapter one is saying, God has indeed kept his promise. He has come. He's here. Isaiah 35 is pointing to the first advent, Christ Jesus coming. And this is huge because it shows us, in fact, who God is, that God is love, as we heard last week from 1 John 4, 7, that he's love. And we know this because true love always comes down. Think of an interaction with a child. You don't expect a child to step up to give you a hug. You, you stoop down to love them, to care for them, to tell them that you love them. Love never says you need to get to my level, but I'm going to get to yours. As God comes at Christmas, he's saying, I did this because I love you. Emmanuel, God with us, means God is love. Second, Jesus means the Lord our Savior, the Lord who saves now, perhaps you're in a similar boat as me. Your house is all decorated with Christmas. We have some lights inside. We have a little bit of lights outside. The candles are getting lit. I just love having fun this time of year. We have like three different Advent calendars, maybe like five. Um, Advent calendars going all at one time, so many that you forget sometimes, like, which one did we do earlier today? And, and the readings that accompany all of those, I love every bit of that. It's a, such a fun time because there's built-in anticipation. It's all great. But as you think about that first Christmas, it wasn't quite like that, was it? Jesus' manger wasn't wrapped in twinkling lights, which are my favorite. Jesus was just wrapped in swaddling cloths. Because he was on a rescue mission. Jesus was coming to do for his children what we could never do for our, ourselves. The paradox that exists there. And so we consider Jesus being the Lord who saves. We find out the way in which God can, in fact, deal with the sin out there. And in here, without ending us, is through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself attested to this in Luke chapter 7 when he tells about who he was, John's disciples in, in particular, that the blind have received their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them as he's quoting Isaiah chapter 35. Jesus says, essentially, I'm the key to everlasting joy. It's me. I'm the one that you've been looking for. So I want us to consider for just a moment today joy in the context of Jesus saving us from our sins. Because I think when we think of sin, oftentimes we're only thinking in legal terms. And there's good there. The Bible often talks about sin in legal ways. But when Jesus is heading to the cross and Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That joy 
that was set before Jesus? Do you think that that was only a legal act? No, it was relational. Jesus knows what kind of relationship that he has existed in for all time with the Trinity. He knows what kind of sinfulness is inside of here, what kind of sinfulness exists outside of there, and that is keeping us from that sort of relationship with him. And so as he heads to the cross, as painful, don't miss it, as his circumstances are, he finds joy knowing that that relationship is going to be restored we are going to be able to be relation, in relationship with him and that we will get to be in relationship with him for all time. As Jesus heads to the cross, his joy comes knowing from, knowing that this is all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. Jesus must have thought, oh yes, I can do this for Oh, yes, I can do this for Diane. Oh, yes, I can do this for Frank. Oh, yes, I can do this for Elizabeth. Oh, yes, I can do this because this brings me great joy. Because I want him to know, I want her to know the kind of joy it brings me to be in relationship with the Father, with the Spirit. It's all part of the plan. So what does that mean for us? Finally, it, it means that joy is a journey for the redeemed. It means that there's a journey that God is inviting the people of God on, verse eight. And it's on a highway, a roadway, which is a very confusing people for those of us who live in Henry County or Metro Atlanta, right? Because we think highway and we think nightmare. We think filled with tons of traffic. We think I don't wanna get anywhere near it, especially over the next couple of weeks. And so this is poor timing in one sense. But in another sense, this is why we have to deal, do our work in the context of the Bible. For the ancient reader, they would have thought highway in the midst of the desert and thought, this is amazing. I'm gonna be able to get from one place to another without any interference. I'm gonna be able to get to this place with safety, with ease, super quickly. God had this plan for his people to be in relationship with him for all time before the world began. And I want you to hear this. God made a plan for it. It wasn't arbitrary that Jesus Christ came as a baby and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross. God made a plan for that. And as Jesus finds himself going to the cross, he is filled with, remember again, in the midst of difficult circumstance, painful, he finds great joy because this is all part of the plan. Jesus knew on his way to the cross that it was part of that plan. And now we see that there is this highway. It's a part of the plan for the redeemed. And you can't miss it. Even fools in the kingdom, even the lowliest in this kingdom can't dodge it. And this highway is said to be one of holiness. Holiness, meaning being set apart for God, meaning that God says, you're mine. 
I don't care what anybody else says about you. You're mine. You're holy. You're one of my children. It's a relational term at its essence. And so the people of God are on a journey and we're invited to follow this God on this highway with our entire selves, completely given to him, knowing that it is all part of the plan. And friend, would you know that there is absolutely nothing boring about following God and his plan? Ray Ortland, in his conclusion of his commentary on this chapter in Isaiah, says that in following Christ, I love this, you are never at a dead end, but at a threshold. So we're not supposed to think when we hear news like this, we're not supposed to hear as we gather as God's people a sermon after sermon, okay, cool, what's next? But rather, there's an opportunity. We're at a threshold. The day is upon us. What is God up to? There's a highway, there's a road, there's a way forward. What could happen today again? What would happen? What would it look like having a life of expectancy? What if we, the people of God, lived in light of expectation? What would it look like as the redeemed to create an atmosphere of expectancy? The writer of Hebrews, again, quotes Isaiah chapter 35 in chapter 12 after explaining that discipline is good for the children of God. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. It seems as if some of the plan of God that he planned for us is that we would be encouragers of one another, that we would help one another, each other press on in the faith that we've been given, share in the joy with others of being a child of God recognizing together that no matter how difficult life is, that joy has indeed come. It's guaranteed. It's been made simple. It's found in Christ, and it is a journey, a journey that you've been invited on. A journey is part of the plan. Here's my challenge to you. When you think about joy, think plan. When you find yourself in hardship today, tomorrow, Think plan. When you find yourself in difficulty or anxiety or weakness, think plan. This is a part of the plan. And the plan of God for the people of God is joy. About five years ago, when Dory and I started preparing, hoping to prepare for what we would hope would end in the adoption of our second child, Man, we were just throwing money into our savings account. And it wasn't a lot, so throwing, that sounds like, like shovels of money. I'm a pastor at the church. But we were, I mean, we were shoveling, you know, that amount, whatever we could, into a savings account. And so at some point, we hoped, man, we would, we would achieve the desired goal, that we would have enough money whenever God, if he ever did present the opportunity for us to take part in another adoption, that we might be ready. And so we spent time doing that. Now, I'm a nostalgic at heart. I often send pictures to Michael just randomly. He's like, what is he doing? Why is he sending me this six-year-old picture of him sitting in a chair at a staff meeting? You know, 
I, I just like looking through my pictures. So today at some point, I'm going to find myself looking through old pictures of what happened on this day. I'm just gonna do it. That's, that's what I enjoy doing, okay? Friends get pictures like this. And, and, and a, few weeks, a few weeks ago, I actually sent to a few friends a picture from 2019. And it was a picture of our accounts. So we had, at, at the time, a checking account and two savings accounts. I still don't really know why we have two savings accounts uh, because one had nothing and you know, another one had a little bit of money that we were trying to put up for the adoption. But nevertheless, that was the picture of the accounts, okay? And, uh, and as I see this picture that I'm scrolling through, I'm just hit with a flood of emotions because the picture showed that I had taken a screenshot of those accounts right after we were able to adopt Cyrus. And one of the savings accounts had zero dollars in it. The second account had $1.86 in it, and the checking account had $27.62. I don't say this in terms of lifting me up. I just tell you this by all financial accounts. Cyrus's adoption cost us everything. And you know what? I just share this as a testimony to the faithfulness of God. Until I saw that picture a few weeks ago, I could not even remember that. I didn't remember that that happened. I didn't remember that I found myself a day that we just had nothing. Because when the opportunity came for us to adopt our son with great joy, we just wrote a check. I didn't think about the upcoming pain. I didn't think about what might happen. You may say, that is incredibly stupid. Maybe it was, but we didn't think about that. With great joy, we wrote the check. I transferred the money out of that savings account into my checking account. We wrote the check, and I just thought, this is just a part of the plan. I wonder what the journey that the Lord has you on is like. I wonder if you would say in the confines of the people of God today where you are incredibly safe, my journey has been marked with tremendous joy. Would you say that? Whatever your answer is, I assure you because scripture assures you that the plan of God for you is that it will. The plan of God is for you that it will. Imagine with me for just a moment the next difficulty that you face in this journey called life. What would it be like if we as God's people paused for a second, had a conversation with the Father that is just called prayer, and we said before God, Lord, I don't like this. Lord, I'm dealing with unimaginable pain in this moment. Lord, I need you to take this physical ailment away. God, I need you to solve this relational deal. I can't do this, but what if as you lift that prayer up to God as he tells us in his word, you thought, but it's okay, Lord, because I know that this is just part of the plan. The plan of God for the people of God is everlasting joy. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us just a moment to gather as your people this morning. We thank you for the journey that you've placed each of us on. It's amazing when we think, oh God, that you are mindful of a people like us. And I just admit, I confess, Father, this morning, I'm weak, feeble, and my heart is anxious. And God, I can also admit, because your word is true, it's sufficient, it's authoritative, I can admit that I know and recognize that your plan for my life as your child is joy. And so while you have me on this journey, whatever may come, whether it be today, whether it be this afternoon, whether it be a year from now, whether I'm facing difficulties with my body, whether I'm facing difficulties in my head, whether I'm facing difficulties in relationships, God, I will recognize by faith that this is just part of the plan, part of your plan for your people for everlasting joy. God, we, we testify today together that you sent your son, Christ Jesus, not arbitrarily, but that you had a plan for us to be redeemed, that a highway would be made so that sinners in, de in deserving of your vengeance and retribution would not see it, that your son, Christ, would see it, and that we might be redeemed. Father, help us to live this life of joy. Help us to lock arms with our brothers and sisters and encourage them, encouraging them along the path. And may we think by faith, this is just part of the plan. We love you. It's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Each week at South Point, we participate in a, a simple meal called communion, a meal that Christ Jesus himself instituted. And so in just a moment, I'm going to invite you, those of you who are members in the body of Christ, those of you who have been given assurance by the blood of Christ that you're one of his to come and participate in this meal. There's bread up here at four stations around this room, and we take that bread as a reminder, a symbolic reminder of Christ's body that was broken for us on the cross, and we dip it into the juice, remembering that his blood was poured out for us that we might be made right with him. And as, as I invite you in just a moment to come, I, I do want us to be mindful of this one thing. This meal is not for anyone who would think that they are worthy. It's not for anyone who would think, I have done this on my own. This meal is a recognition by the people of God that we are indeed weak, that we are indeed feeble, and that we are anxious, and we desperately need Christ Jesus. It's a part of the plan. Joy, everlasting joy, is the plan of God for the people of God. Christian, won't you come and partake in this meal?